Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. You're hearing a lot from national commentators this morning that party power in federal government hangs in the balance. And I should tell you that at least one big congressional race in Connecticut hasn't been called yet. But today on Where We Live, we're going to talk with our panel of experts about the sort of red wave missing Connecticut and state residents deciding they want early voting. We want to hear from you. Were you surprised by any of the election results? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before we break down the election results with our panel, we talk right now with a winner. My first guest is the Lieutenant Governor of the State of Connecticut, Susan Bysowitz, Lieutenant Governor. You and the Governor were reelected last night. The Governor declared victory. And it looks like Bob Stefanowski finally conceded the race for governor about an hour ago, Lieutenant Governor. Did this go a little smoother than last election? And once again, congratulations, Lieutenant Governor. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And things did go more smoothly (laughs) last night uh, than four years ago. Four years ago, uh, we won uh, by a lot less and... This morning, uh, we we went uh, to bed knowing that we had won last night. Um, both uh, the a- I believe the AP and also uh, ABC News, Fox News, multiple organizations had had called our race. So that was good to know. Um, that didn't happen four years ago, and we so appreciate the confidence. Uh, that the people of Connecticut have shown in us. Yeah, what do you say to your supporters, the people that voted for you and the governor? Thank you so much. We are so very grateful. Uh, I believe that uh, having won by double digits shows that people felt very confident in the governor's leadership. I know so many voters told me how appreciative they were of the governor's very calm and decisive leadership during COVID, that they appreciated him listening to medical advice, science and data, and making his decisions and keeping our kids in school safely and reopening our economy. So it was uh, very gratifying to see the results last night. I'm picking a few things here from the last four years. You just talked about COVID, the COVID response effort, uh, turning COVID relief dollars into support for the budget, more money into the rainy day fund, the state legislature adopting major police reform. Uh, What's next for you guys? What's next for the administration? Well, we want to continue to put our state on sound fiscal footing. We've had four balanced budgets without raising taxes. We passed a historic tax cut and we paid down 
uh, close to $6 billion in pension debt. So we want to continue on that path. I think you will see a continued focus on job training because we have 100,000 jobs that are open right now, uh, and we need to retrain, train, and upskill people so that they can have skills that are matched to those very good-paying jobs in manufacturing, in IT, in finance, in healthcare. So that is one of the biggest challenges that we face. Lieutenant Governor, real quickly before we end this interview, can I ask you to sort of, I guess, uh, put your Secretary of the State hat back on real quickly here? I, I got the former Secretary of the State with me, and we, we've been hearing about higher turnout in the suburbs, maybe lower turnout in the cities. What are you hearing? And then, I guess, can you just give me something on early voting coming to Connecticut? Well, we're so excited that the voters have approved that. It will take us out of the four states before the vote that did not have early voting. I think that's something that we really need. Uh, The uh, onus will now be on the legislature to work with our election officials to figure out how best to do that for our state. But I think COVID showed us that people really uh, would like to have early voting and more flexibility. So I think that's really great. And uh, you mentioned the suburbs and the cities. Governor and I are so appreciative that our victory wasn't just in big cities. It was in uh, suburbs, small towns, big, bigger towns all across the state. So we, we really are so grateful to the people of Connecticut uh, for the opportunity to continue to serve. Susan Bisowitz, the lieutenant governor for the state of Connecticut, thank you for coming on and congratulations. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, we told you we'd have a panel of guests today to break down the midterms, and I guess I'm pretty lucky here to have the following three panelists to help us do just that. Joining me now are, on Zoom, Kalila Brown-Dean, the Associate Provost, Provost, I can't even say Provost this morning, and Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University and host of Connecticut Public's podcast, Disrupted. We got Jonathan Wharton, the Professor of Political Science at Southern Connecticut State University, He's also the Associate Dean at the School of Graduate and Professional Studies and state politics reporter at CT Insider, Julia Bergman. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, guys, there's still some outstanding business here locally, I guess. Bob Stefanowski uh, just sort of conceded, it looks like, and it looks like the CT5 race has maybe grown a little bit closer. Uh, Julia, you got anything to report this hour? Yes. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, Bob conceded about an hour ago, you know, he said that obviously it wasn't um, the outcome that he was hoping for, but he said it should still be recognized as, quote, a substantial step in the right direction, unquote. Um, you know, his statement featured a lot of the themes that we saw throughout his campaign, affordability, support for law enforcement, people feeling unsafe, uh, parents wanting to raise their children as they see fit. Um, as of now, unofficial results from AP are showing Lamont with uh, more than 140,000 votes ahead. Um, but uh, the U.S. House race is much, much closer than that between Johanna Hayes and George Logan. At this point, um, it's still too close to call. It looks um, that that might be headed for a recount. Um, again, unofficial results from EP showing Johanna Hayes with about 1,300 um 
more votes than George Republican George Logan. And uh, the margin of error is just at, uh, sorry, not margin of error, the margin um, between their vote counts is 0.5%, uh, which would is what triggers uh, an automatic recount here. My God, that's razor thin, because if you're thinking about that margin, that's probably 1,200, 1,300 votes, something like where they are. I'm imagining where they're at right now. I'm imagining the uh, Logan people are are hoping for a recount at this hour. We're going to get back to these state races. Kalila, if I'm standing at Silver Sands in Milford after like 8 o'clock last night, why am I not overtaken by a red wave of water? You know, there was no red wave here. The The water hit the rocks and became more of a trickle. This is not 2010, where we saw this dramatic Republican takeover at every level of government. And I think that's key, Frankie. People often said the red wave would just be at the congressional level. We didn't see the kind of flips at the state level, at the gubernatorial level, at some of those races that have an impact on the day to day. So we didn't see the pickups we saw in 2010. And that's especially surprising for some people because of the changes that have happened structurally in terms of voter access. There were key pickups but certainly not the massive change that we saw in 2010 after Barack Obama was elected in 2008 and the Tea Party Republicans sort of emerged across the country. Jonathan Wharton, Southern Connecticut State, you poli-sci professor. I heard a lot of people saying before polls closed that momentum for Republicans and, and federal races uh, was there. And what was ending up happening yesterday, I wonder, across the country is that, I, I guess, let me zoom back out for a second. I guess they're saying a lot of this might have been a referendum on Joe Biden. But if what we're seeing at the end of the night, is it more of a referendum on Donald Trump? What do you think? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, look, these races, especially for Congress, really vary by state. So we, we can't say it's a red anything at any point anyway. Um, so I, I think that, if anything, we should be most concerned that in the House, at least, we know that that's going to shift. I mean, it's it's certainly very razor thin. Um, and even in the U.S. Senate, it's, it's interesting to see how close that's come out to, nationally speaking, at least, Frankie. Um, as it relates to Connecticut, certainly the Connecticut Senate is going to remain. And with the House, you know, our House, at least, it looks like, you know, there could be a couple pickups. So, you know, I these races are always quirky and interesting. As far as statewide races, which I'm a little bit more intrigued by, um, you know, I, I want to see these final tallies on, on both sides to kind of see how close did uh, the Republican Party come. Uh, and, and better yet, we, we really should have a better understanding what's going on with the 5th District um, in terms of those final numbers. I know folks are listening to Morning Edition this morning and are like, yeah, we might have heard this stuff already. But it, it sets the stage quite nicely for what happened locally, including in Greenwich, where I read an article recently by Dan Barry of the New York Times profiling a political landscape he said was Republicans versus Trumplicans. Julia Bergman of CT Insider, the net result in the state house races in that town, I believe, was a loss. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, Gre Greenwich went pretty strongly for Democrats uh, yesterday, both at the um, more statewide level and then also uh, in the state general assembly seats. Um, we had a, a seat flip there. Um, so that will, yeah, definitely uh, Democrats have something to sort of declare victory there. Any other town before we go to break here, any other town or any any other kind of races that you, you were watching, Julia, where you're like, 
man, this this broke out a, a certain way, either for the Democrats or Republicans, or I guess a, a, a surprise just really quickly. Anything like that? Um, you saw Kim, Kim Fiorello, Republican from Fairfield County, uh, also get beat by a, a Democrat. Um, so that was sort of a big win from Democrats. I think, you know, mostly in Fairfield County, there was some, that they were some seats that they were uh, able to flip there. Gotcha. That's where you're looking. All right. Uh, from Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Frankie Graziano. And right after this short break, I'll still be here with Kalila, Jonathan, and Julia talking midterms. You can join the conversation, 888. 888- 720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano, and with me on Zoom, Kalila Brown-Dean, the Associate Provost and Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University and host of Connecticut Public's podcast, Disrupted. Jonathan Wharton, the Professor of Political Science at Southern Connecticut State University and State Politics Reporter for CT Insider, Julia Bergman. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Hey, we're going to focus in a bit uh, more on key races in a moment. But first, shall the Constitution of the state be amended to permit the General Assembly to provide for early voting? And the answer, according to the Associated Press, was a big yes from Connecticut residents, 59% of the vote so far. Jonathan, Connecticut can no longer be one of the just four states that doesn't allow for early in-person voting. This isn't over yet, though, right now, goes to lawmakers? Right. And, uh, you know, it's unusual that we're in the situation that we were in in Connecticut, Um you know, there were so many different things that were challenging about this as an issue. I think that COVID kind of brought out the realities that there had to be some election reform consideration. It was interesting, though, Frankie, that this guy had to be brought up as a referendum as opposed to just the, you know, and, and change the Constitution as opposed to just having the, the state legislature vote on this. So I think I'm more of a process guy. We're more intrigued on that side of it than anything else. Julia, you hearing anything about how this can be implemented or who may challenge it? I'm thinking about uh, this may be coming up in the session, obviously, this year. Uh, 
And then there's length of time, too. Is that, Well, before we get that, are, are you hearing anything about the upcoming session and how this might factor into it? Well, I think it's important to note that we already have a, a legal challenge um, against the early voting that was filed, I believe, yesterday by a New Britain woman. Um, and I think the next hearing in that case is scheduled uh, for next week. So uh, obviously already a legal challenge there. But um, what, what would happen is, uh, you know, or what's it was sort of looking like what will happen is obviously the legislature will come into session early next year and um, they will start uh, drafting legislation that would implement an early voting system here. Um, that could be in place as early as, as 2024 is what I'm hearing. And then there's length of time. I remember Dominic Rapini, the Republican state, Secretary of the State candidate, saying anything more than a couple of days of early voting would cost the state a lot of money. Are you hearing anything about uh, the length of time that this could be in place once uh, once early voting is implemented? I don't think we've gotten to that level of detail yet, um, but in other states, you know, early voting laws let ballots, um, people cast ballots anywhere from a couple of days to a few weeks before uh, an election. So, um, you know, obviously Connecticut will likely fit somewhere in that timeline. Uh, Democrat control of the um, both the state Senate and state House, you know, um, so they're going to they're going to obviously have sort of more of an upper hand here in crafting this legislation. Um, so maybe you would see a longer, longer length of time. Jonathan, when I was talking to Dominic Rapini about this about a month ago, he said that if you have early voting too early, you really can't account for like an October surprise or something like that. He was talking about maybe something like 30 days out. I know Stephanie Thomas was saying that it, would, it wouldn't it would be anything like that. What, what do you think? What do you think about early voting and, and well, the, the some time of these here? States, yeah, no, it's a good question, Freddie. Some of these states really do vary, right? Some states allow for just a few days, maybe five to ten. Um, others allow for weeks in advance, um, as you're saying. So it, it's really, you know, kind of, it's not consistent among these states. I, I think what Connecticut is aiming for is at least a week in advance, which I don't think is, is highly unusual. I mean, one of the big concerns was, well, what happens if a scandal or issue arises and you've already made the decision uh, with a candidate at least? And then, you know, how can you go back and change? Well, you can't. So that that was one of the, the concerns that, that came out of this. But I think for the most part, you know, we certainly saw this last night. You know, uh, Connecticut voters wanted this as, as a change, at least. And then when we're talking about this actually going through at some point, we're, we're talking about in-person voting, right? I mean, we, we could see up to uh, up to a week maybe of, of in-person voting. And then you also have the no excuse absentee balloting, as I understand it. Is that correct? Jonathan? Right. And yeah, exactly. And and I think you already know, Frankie, one of the things that this come out of this too is that, you know, this could be costly because, um, I mean, not to give an excuse for it, but <laughs> we have to remember that we have so many municipalities here and so many towns are going to have to, you know, uh, you know, have to figure out a way and sort this out and organizing what will be best practices. I'm sure that the towns will exchange and discuss and dialogue in terms of best ways to sort this out because, you know, this is another thing to consider, financially speaking, to, to help organize um, and advance everything. So I think the big test will certainly come in the 2024 um, election, which is going to be a, a key one for the presidential races. Ah, the cost of democracy, but also weigh that against, I guess, the cost of not including people in on the process. Kalila, the Connecticut chapter of the ACLU says that this is a victory for racial justice. I remember talking to Claudine Constant of the ACLU and saying I was talking to her about a, a month ago on this, and she says, when you restrict access in any way, it's voter suppression. What are your thoughts on what early voting means for access to the vote in Connecticut for people of color? 
No, I think it helps overcome some of the structural institutional barriers that people face in voting. We think about this last year and understanding that everyone doesn't have the luxury of taking the time away from work, especially in a state like ours with such dramatic economic gaps. People are working multiple jobs. They are a caregiving generation where they're taking care of their children as well as elderly parents. This is an issue of justice, not just for people of color in the state, but also in a state like Connecticut, where we see such a large population of elderly voters. It is also about their access. What do you do when you're having a chronic pain flare up and you can't stand in line? So if this is about democratic access, Connecticut people are smart. We'll figure out how to make this work. It'll take some time, but it's also about the commitment that says where you live, what you do, what you have to do to take care of yourself and your family should not be a barrier to you being able to have a vote and connect to the state in the ways that every candidate says should happen. I think I'll be paying attention to what happens to the legislature, I guess, in the opening days when the session opens up uh, next year. Zoomers, can we zoom in on the races a bit. Sorry for the stupid joke here in the morning, but Kalila in the fifth, we heard recently Richard Blumenthal say there's no race more important than the fifth congressional district. Tight race. What do you make of it? Yeah, I think it shows as well that, you know, Frankie, I'll be completely honest. One of the things I am looking forward to at the conclusion of this election is not being inundated with ads <laughs> that seem you know, everywhere you go, whether it's YouTube, social media, television to watch a sporting event, we are inundated with ads. I think that this is a tight race and it's indicative of what's happening nationally, not just the fact that a party decided the way to counter a Black woman running for office is to find another person of color to sort of take race off of the table. We saw that in Georgia, we've seen it in Connecticut. At issue as well is that the amount of money that gets poured into these races and these campaigns, the amount of outside national influence into a race that's about Connecticut and Connecticut people and their representation, but also how important it is to have a connection to the place that you want to represent. This is an important race, again, not just for Connecticut, but more broadly, what sh we should expect to see and who may be running in races at the national, state, and local level over the next two years. I'm sticking with you on this, Kalila, because I thought about this, and I've been following around George Logan recently. You saw that we did the debate uh, in the 5th District, and I had uh, George Logan and Johanna Hayes there, and I asked them a few questions. And I made sure I went back to him yesterday to ask him about this, because when you talk about putting a, a black candidate up against another black candidate and sort of washing out race, I guess, or whatever whatever the, the term you used there was, what, what can happen is that marginalized communities maybe become more marginalized. I, the way I say that is that I'm talking to George Logan about, uh, about uh, transgender athletes and recent challenges, mm -hmm. and this involves two young black women uh, that are that are, are being sued for their competition uh, in local sports. And then we're talking about uh, defund the police and things like that. And what mm -hmm. ends up happening is you, I guess, get tougher on crime. So what do you think about that statement? Yeah, I think that what people should take away from this race and from politics overall 
is the realization that communities are not monolithic. That just because you share an identity, it could be race, it could be gender, it could be where you grew up, what you do for a living, does not mean that your ideological views or your political preferences will be the same. That sounds really basic. And yet voters are hammered often that kind of monolithic view of community. The other problem here, Frankie, is that when people think that they are taking certain identities off the table, they then narrow those candidates into a particular set of issues that don't represent the broad reality of the day-to-day lived experiences of people in the 5th District or anywhere else. And so Johanna Hayes and George Logan should be asked about more than just funding the police. They should be asked about opportunities for young people to learn, to get an education, and to contribute back to the district where they were raised. But those issues never seem to come to the table because people want to narrow them based on who's running. You just said that last statement so profoundly that that's like pretty much what I was trying to say in a nutshell. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. This conversation is getting pretty good here. I would say if you want to join in on it, 888-720-9677. 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Jonathan, I'm going to you here. I I just, it's an awkward question, but is there a way now that even moderate Republicans can't stay away from, I guess, talking uh, so bluntly about the LGBTQIA plus community and in such a a, a negative way as we've heard George Logan uh, thus far, or even when we're talking about uh, police reform and things like that and trying to put qualified immunity back on the table, I guess, in Connecticut or whatever exists from from uh, from qualified immunity. Is there is there a way to kind of step away from that? No, because uh, those are significant issues. And it's not just purely on even the Republican side, especially among centrists. But you know, I don't want to forget so many of these unaffiliated voters. I mean, that is the back base of certainly the 5th Congressional District, but beyond, they're the majority. These affiliate voters are the majority in Connecticut. So you have to find something, um, and you have to find a pathway of explaining out these issues, yes, among moderates, uh, moderate Republicans, but certainly among these unaffiliated voters, which are the majority. Um, I think that, you know, it's no surprise, Frankie, I mean, the Republican Party in Connecticut, and I'm not talking about nationally. I know the media loves to obsess over what's going on through the National Party. I get it with Donald Trump. He's the most fascinating figure, most divisive one. I get that. But for Connecticut Republicans especially, there's got to be at least some concerns. And I think, and I know there are, about what can be hammered out in terms of the centrist viewpoint um, as as you're articulating. I'm not saying we have to have a Charlie Baker candidate or anything like that, like up in Massachusetts and former governor uh, and being that way. But, you know, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens, not just even so much in the fifth congressional district, but beyond, uh, you know, what is the pathway now and what does this mean, certainly for the upcoming presidential um, elections in 2024? Yeah, I want to finish up the fifth with Julia in a second. But ju- let me just go back to that, Jonathan. Is it? Do you think maybe the media is out of turn here or saying it's some of these uh, some some of these outlets saying that what we're seeing in Pennsylvania and particularly is 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 on Donald Trump? Do you, do you think there's too much of that or is this a slap in the face to, to Republicans or or anybody that might uh, side with that kind of candidate to say that you just can't go with a Trump? Maybe you go with a DeSantis or somebody like that. What are your thoughts? No, it's a very good question. You know, unfortunately, what gets lost in the narrative is that uh, going back to your point, there are a lot of centrist Republicans out there. It's just for the most part, I'm talking about in Connecticut, for the most part, I've seen this up close, 
they're not as outspoken, right? We know that the attention draws more towards the, the Trump supporters. And look, I'll be fair, they certainly showed up in supporting um, Leora Levy, right, for, for the U.S. Senate. Um, as opposed to Themis Claritus, even though Themis Claritus was the endorsed candidate. So it's not that the centrists don't matter. I think that the numbers are there, but it's not enough. And, and in reality, um, you know, the Trump supporters are the ones who do come out, even in the primaries and certainly at, you know, um, when it's necessary um, to, you know, go beyond the endorsement of the political candidate. So this, this is still going to be an ongoing battle. There's no question. Um, but I think that you know, this has got to be at least discussed out even internally within the Republican Party here in Connecticut. I want to finish up on this race. I, I, I wanted to spend a lot of time on it because I thought it was uh, such a such a tight race. And uh, if somehow George Logan uh, is able to, I guess, overcome this deficit here, maybe this does have some kind of national implications on on what the balance of power, I guess, is in the U.S. House. But Julia, I just want Julia, I just want to finish it here and and say. If we look at those numbers, whatever the the most recent reports are from the AP or the Secretary of the State's office, is there any path that we can say see here that uh, either George Logan wins or can I guess overcome uh, in a recount? Yeah, I mean, I, there's certainly still room for him to win um, at this point. You know, it's it's very close. Um, it, it is looking like a, a a recount situation as of now. Um, with 95% of the of the vote in, according to uh, AP, again, still unofficial results. I think it's important to remember that national Republicans spent a lot of um, time and resources on this race. They set up shop in New Britain pretty earlier on. Um, the RNC chairwoman, Ron McDaniel, came, uh, I believe, at least twice, you know, once to open up the, the uh, headquarters there and, and then again to sort of rally support ahead of the primary. Um, so national Republicans really um, put a lot of focus into this race. So I think there might be um, some interesting implications, uh, you know, their analysis to come from there uh, after the fact, if George does lose. Do we know anything about what might be outstanding in terms of uh, what? No, I saw some speculation out there about towns or fifth district outposts that uh, might be still outstanding here to count. Have you heard anything? Uh, it seems like generally the cities have been slower to come in. Mm -hmm. um, I did just check on the Secretary of the State's website. Um, Johanna Hayes is um, looks like she has about uh, Congresswoman Hayes has about 60 percent of the vote in um, New Britain, which is where the uh, the National Republicans had set up shop. Um, and uh, obviously an interesting place there with a Republican mayor, but um, Democratic heavy city. Uh, and then in her hometown of Waterbury, she was up um, nearly I said nearly 55 percent of the vote. Um, and I'm sorry, she said nearly 60 uh, percent of the vote in New Britain, not up by 60 percent. So. Um, you know, pretty strong majorities in, in the cities there. I mean, the fifth is a, it's a, it's always been seen as sort of the more competitive um, congressional district in Connecticut. You obviously have um, Waterbury there and, and New Britain, but it's um, also much of the northwestern part of the state that borders Massachusetts um, and New York. Yeah, I, I guess uh, I guess I'm trying to quit the uh, fifth, but I can't because we have a comment from Jonathan on Facebook who says. Given Liz Cheney's treatment, what makes Logan think his allies in Washington, there was quotes around allies, would even work with him? I asked him yesterday and he said he wasn't going to Washington to appease party leadership, but to represent the fifth. What does everyone else think? I think it's a wonderful sentiment. I think the reality, especially if the House 
turns in the ways that it's expected to and looks like, it is a wonderful sentiment to think that you just go there to represent your district. Ideally, that's what would happen. But in a time where political parties are so divided and are so wedded to keeping people tied to the party line, that can have implications for the committees that one is assigned to, the work that they can do and their ability to really represent the issues of their district and put that into something that is more meaningful than just, I tried. So even with the best intentions, given the reality of partisanship and power and control in Congress right now and what we expect, it'll be a more difficult push. Jonathan, your thoughts on Jonathan's question. Yeah, no, look, I've been obsessed about this and not even as a political scientist, more as a former congressional aide. Uh, because, you know, I, I worked for the U.S. House of Representatives for both sides of the aisle for half a dozen years. And I have to say, it's very difficult to be the lone one. Um, in truth, there are others I know that exist, especially within Congress. But we already know this even with Liz Cheney and others. It's very, very difficult to pull off. Um, at the end of the day, though, when it comes to these decision making about, you know, who's going to be chairs of these committees, which you have to consider, you know, with the Republican takeover in the House of Representatives, that party affiliation does matter. Um, and so um, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. One thing too, to add to this, <laughs> Frankie, I'm sure you've thought about this, is that that fifth district was made up of, you know, by Republicans in the past of people that we know already, like Nancy Johnson, um, even Gary Franks, you know, and they were Republicans back in the 90s and even 15 years ago, uh, like, like, you know, Nancy Johnson. So I, you know, you can't discount that, yes, it's overwhelmingly not, well, this majority and affiliated, but it was pretty Republican district. Maybe not as nearly, nearly as much as it was, let's say, 15, 20 years ago, but it's still pretty much, you know, an important district to Connecticut uh, for the Republican turnout. I saw Nancy Johnson last night at the George Logan campaign party. I was there last night and Nancy Johnson, uh, I guess, spoke for a little bit, but I also interviewed her with my Connecticut Mirror and Connecticut Public colleague, Lisa Hagan. I'm going to to Julia on this, but but what she says is our curriculum in schools is dividing us as a country. She also says that nobody's talking about crime enough on the side of the Democrats. These are the issues that, Julia, you kind of outlined a, a little bit when we were talking about, I think, the gubernatorial race uh, uh, earlier. I, I think that was you that said that. But these are things that came up between Stefanowski and Lamont here in the last couple of days of the race. Would you, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. And these are, these are themes and talking points that we've seen um, from Republican candidates across the country. Um, you know, crime uh, is, is routinely a, a, an issue that Republicans talk about, particularly leading up to midterm elections. Um, obviously we saw that here as well uh, with, with uh, Stefanowski more tying it to um, also support or uh for law enforcement or being anti-police is what sort of he accused Lamont of. Um, so definitely, you know, big theme here as well. I kind of joked around with this uh, with Susan Bysowitz, but I still have a flashback to the 2018 race where I was at Stefanowski until three o'clock in the morning and then had to roll into Lamont at eight o'clock for the uh, for the victory speech. But uh, was this race, do you think, a little bit further out for Lamont, a little bit more of a dominant victory? What do you think, Julia? Yeah, I think you had a few different factors at play. Obviously, it was an open seat in 2018 when Stefanowski and Lamont faced off. Um, you had a lot of discontent around Democratic, former de Democratic Governor uh, Daniel Malloy. 
Um, so I think there was a lot of reaction to that. Uh, and I think that, you know, Bob uh, emerged and I think was out of a race of five others. I think they were running for Republic, um, the Republican nominee at the time. Um, so a lot of different factors at play that I think led to a much closer vote total. Um, Lamont beat him by about uh, 44,000 votes in 2018. Uh, as we said, I mean, it, it's looking like over 140,000 at this point. Um, what I what I think is really interesting based on the results right now is that Stefanowski has basically uh, gotten the same percentage of both as Leora Levy. And I would say that he tried to be a very different candidate than Leora Levy. Uh, she was obviously endorsed by former President Donald Trump. Um, and it is uh, against abortion, uh, you know, describes herself as pro-life, uh, you know, does support exceptions for rape and incest, while Stefanowski, you know, was very adamant about, um, you know, making making clear that he is pro-choice uh, and that he, you know, didn't want to come in and sort of destroy Connecticut's uh, record on abortion rights. He was, uh, you know, said similar things about gun safety, that the state has very strong already has very strong, strict laws here, and they didn't intend to change them. Um, but, uh, you know, based on what voters, uh, you know, reaction yesterday, it looks like the, 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 a lot of voters viewed him and Leora Levy uh, as the same candidate, or maybe they just, you know, saw the R next to their names and, and voted against that. Well, Frankie, can I interrupt here with Julia here, if you don't mind? Yeah, no doubt. Go ahead. I'm just curious, Julie, because I'm trying to figure out some of the data and the numbers. I mean, what Frankie introduced us with from the beginning, it's the urban turnout, right? Because certainly the base, even in New Haven, from what I'm reading from the New Haven Independent and other sources, is that the numbers just weren't there compared to 2018. Beyond New Haven, are you seeing the same thing maybe in Bridgeport and Hartford, just out of curiosity? Yeah, I think you definitely saw lower lower than expected turnout in the cities. Um, I think what really helped the, helped the Democrats was Fairfield County. I think you saw um, much sort of stronger turnout for Democrats there than expected. Hey, hey guys, just just really quickly on this, Jonathan, what where did Stefanowski go wrong? You think in, in this race? Um, well, you know, the the thing is, is that there were a lot of changes in directions with the campaign, right? With staff, with pitches, pitching and messaging, um, which is unusual, um, and so we saw that take place even during the summer. Uh, I can't say that that was exactly the direction, but, you know, I think that this is something that will probably have to be uh, considered uh, for maybe the next time around if he were to choose it or if the party goes uh, with another candidate. So I think there are going to be a lot of lessons learned in terms of strategy. Um, it was a concern even back in 2018 when he initially ran. Um, but I, I think that's going to be one thing um, to kind of uh, get into. Um, the other thing is that we know that uh, how can you differentiate yourself as a candidate for a statewide office, even if it's gubernatorial, from what's going on nationally? That's going to be an ongoing um, discussion and debate, no doubt. And so, uh, you know, there's going to be some lessons learned here. And, Kalila, we're kind of up against the break, but I think this is very important to talk about. The, the gender identity thing that I keep hearing about here late in the race, uh, particularly from Bob Stefanowski, it made for an awkward moment in a recent debate where they're talking about, I guess, how teachers are going to address LGBTQIA plus communities in school or something like that to kindergartners. I don't know how that pops up. Is it, is it, is it, is it harmful the way that we're talking about this in politics? I think it's dangerous. And I think that we've already seen the impact of this rhetoric, not just on young people's well-being, not just on the ways that they see themselves and their possibility, but also in the very real acts of 
harm, harassment, discrimination that people face. Look, we can have disagreements about how much we think young people should know and when we think they should know. But what we can't do is engage in the kind of fear mongering that has people think that in kindergarten, kids are learning about the gingerbread man, their primary colors, and the full spectrum of identity. What kindergartners are learning and should learn is what we all should have learned is to be kind to others and treat people the way we want to. And if a candidate for such a high office cannot grasp that most basic reality, then it says a lot more about their commitment and their willingness than anything that hardworking teachers are trying to accomplish. Still to come, more congressional races, constitutional races, and maybe a local race or two. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live. I'm Frankie Graziano. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. I'm with Kalila Brown-Dean, Jonathan Wharton, and Julia Bergman. Julia, I'm coming to you just to, just really quickly here. The 2nd Congressional District was something I wanted to ask you about because I know that you have a, have a lot of experience covering Joe Courtney. And I thought if maybe Hayes was in trouble, then maybe Courtney would be in trouble, I guess, because of how that district can be made up. What were your thoughts on that race against Mike France? I mean, Joe Courtney is obviously a very strong candidate. It's why he's been elected. I think this is his eighth term that he just got elected to. Um, you know, he's managed to be um, very popular in a, in a really tough district. Again, it covers basically the whole eastern portion of the state, a lot of more uh, rural conservative areas. But um, his support for the military, of course, I think has helped um, sway, you know, non-democratic voters on his side. Um, I think people have seen that, seen him as sort of maybe more of a moderate Democrat um, and compared to some of his peers. Um, so maybe that's also led to uh, un- unaffiliated voters or um, more moderate Republicans supporting him. But um, certainly that's something, you know, his his uh, success is something for other Democrats to study. Kalila, we got John Larson serving 12 terms. He he beats Larry Laser here, it looks like. And then, of course, you have, I'm, I'm going I'm to just go through a bunch of these here. Rosa DeLauro beating Leslie Denardis in the third. Jamie Stevenson losing to Jim Himes in the fourth. And then U.S. Senator race, Richard Blumenthal and Leora Levy. Any thoughts from those races? Any kind of, uh, I guess, broad uh, broad viewpoints on that? Yeah, I think the broad viewpoint is that, you know, there is a definitely an advantage to being an incumbent. I think people are willing to support those that they know and understand what's at stake and also feel like these are people that they can actually connect to and talk to. And that will be important moving forward as we see how these candidates decide their next steps and at what level they want to pursue political office. I want to go to Jonathan on uh, on uh, on constitutional offices, but before I do that, any of you guys, can you tell me about uh, we we I kind of stepped away from reproductive rights here, which is such an important issue this uh, this election cycle because of what happened 
in the Supreme Court with the overruling of Roe versus Wade. Kind of got into this a little bit, Julia, earlier with talking about Bob Stefanowski with him saying, hey, I'm not going to change any abortion law, uh, uh, except I might change one, uh, talking about parental notification. Guys, your thoughts here on on the uh, future of, of abortion, maybe not necessarily in Connecticut, but maybe even nationwide. You know, I don't think we should take Connecticut off the table. And I know that came up in a lot of the debates, a lot of the discussions, because even if access and rights are secured here in Connecticut, what's happening in other states will have an impact on what happens here, whether it's people who need to come to Connecticut for access to reproductive care or others who are affected by that. And again, the idea of weaponizing such a sensitive issue that has an impact on so many people is problematic, but also means that we've seen people were willing to protect access, even if they don't agree with the practice. Julia, I'm, to, I'm, I'm trying to uh, put a, a, some kind of prognosticator's hat here on and look maybe forward into the next legislative session. Do you see anything coming up on reproductive rights? I know that the governor tried to make this a, quote, safe harbor for folks looking for reproductive care. Yeah, I think you're going to see some, maybe potentially legislation similar to what we saw this session that tries to... Um, you know, foreshadow or plan for what other states, uh, more restrictive states might do. Um, you have, uh, you know, one of the laws that passed here um, allows um, for, you know, protects uh, physicians and also patients who travel here from other states um, from being the subject of out-of-state lawsuits. So I think we're going to see some more um, kind of, um yeah, proposals like that, sort of trying to anticipate what is going to come next, what actions are going to be taken by more um, restrictive states. I think it's also on the abortion issue, we should point out that the, the poll, there was a pretty large gender um, gap at the polls, public polling uh, leading up to election day, show, you know, with Democrats like Lamont and um, Richard Blumenthal having having pretty sizable leads with, with women in particular. Um, and of course, the abortion issue likely contributes to that in large part. Jonathan, constitutional offices here, uh, Attorney General William Tong is going to prevail, it looks like, uh, or at least uh, he's, he's called the race in his favor. Uh, Sean Scanlon over Mary Faye, I believe, for Comptroller. And uh, it looks like Eric Russell took down uh, Harry Aurora. Is, is that what you're seeing? Anything you have on on this? Did you think any might, might have been a split ticket somewhere? What would you think? Yeah, I mean, among these these races, it's interesting for the constitutional white offices. It's it's difficult, right? Because it tends to be the coattails of the um, you know the, the gubernatorial ticket, which shouldn't be surprising. Um, but I think that the the numbers came in closer, at least uh, for the Mary Faye side, than expected. Um, but that that's kind of interesting to me that among those offices, that that probably was the one that that came in closer than I expected. Um, but you know, this is kind of the effects of what happens with constitutional state offices. You, you have the coattail effect. Race called uh, by the uh, Associated Press. Uh, Stephanie Thomas, the Democrat winning secretary of the state. I forgot to mention that. And then, of course, Susan Bicewitz, again, the lieutenant governor of the state of Connecticut. Uh, before we finish here, guys, uh, I just want to give you guys an opportunity. Any more races you were looking at or any any more uh, election related thoughts? 30 seconds uh, for each of you. Go ahead, Jonathan, you start first. You know, I got to say, Frankie, I was more obsessed about Congress than I should be. <laughs> and and I think it's just because 
I'm fascinated by how close those numbers have come um, for, you know, uh, the House of Representatives in particular. So with these races, so I, I've centered more of my attention in that direction than let's just say that the statewide or constitutional um, offices. So I'm going to be still paying close attention to that, see what the final outcome of that is. Julie, I should shout out your great reporting that you did of Bob Stefanowski there and, and any connections he had with the Saudi uh, royal family or government uh, there uh, in the last couple of months. Anything you want to talk about here in the uh, last 30 seconds you have or so? Uh, yeah, I'm really I'm really looking forward to sort of drilling down into the towns to look at the results uh, and and see sort of the differences between 2018 uh, and this year. Um, and, you know, noticing any sort of flips there or anything that might be at play that might be more of a, a longer term trend or maybe it's just, um, you know, short term reaction. My uh, one of my colleagues, John Moritz, um, was tweeting out some of the the part- towns that um, Lamont likely flipped from 18. And I'll just read a few of them here. Greenwich, New Canaan. Uh, North Stonington, Waterford, Colchester, Portland, Cheshire, Ansonia. So I think in the in the next couple of days and weeks, looking at the numbers and um, turnout will be really interesting for to predict uh, or, or, you know, for analysis for future races. Kalila, Disrupted's yeah. coming up. Let's plug Disrupted because I, I, I tried to do that organically in the debate and failed and I'm doing that here as well. But you're going to be talking about the election on Disrupted. No, you did. You plugged it. I think what happened on November 8th is important. What we do now moving forward is even more important in many ways. So this week's show airs today at 2 p.m. and you can listen to the podcast. Our guest is Nicholas Davidoff, who's author of a new book called The Other Side of Prospect, A Story of Violence, Injustice, and the American City. No better way to understand how all of these policy issues of access to jobs, of access to education, access to housing, how that affects communities and their ability to move forward. So it's definitely connected and I hope people will tune in. Thank you to Kalila Brown-Dean, the Associate Provost and Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University, Jonathan Wharton, Professor of Political Science at Southern Connecticut State University, and Julia Bergman, State Politics Reporter for CT Insider. And thank you to Lucy Nalpathanchel for letting this show be so relevant here in the last seven years that she hosted it and allowing me to fill in here and maybe hit for her today. I'm Frankie Graziano. Today's show produced by Where We Live is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Dylan Reyes. Thank you for listening. Connecticut Public Radio, we believe keeping